So on the morning of the Buddha's enlightenment, he described his experience of nirvana like this. I have found a nectar-like dharma, profound, peaceful, free from reference points, luminous, and unconditioned. So I had never heard of this description of nirvana before until I read this book called The Heart Attack Sutra by Carl Brunholtz. I think that's how you pronounce his name. The Heart Sutra, for those of you who don't know, we chant most every day, if not every day, during our morning service here at this at um, City Center as well as Green Gulch and Tassajara. So it's one of the foundational um, sutras of, of Zen Buddhism. And the story has it that when the Buddha first gave this teaching, everybody had a heart attack in the audience. So I'm sure that won't happen here. I'm not the Buddha. <laughs> we don't have to worry about heart attacks. So uh, this is why uh, the scholar called the book the Heart Attack Sutra. So when I heard this description, when I read it, I thought, well, this phrase, free from reference points, is very interesting to me. Right? So if nirvana, and nirvana means, there's many meanings to nirvana, but one that I find most helpful is the end of suffering each moment, or a liberation from suffering even while it's happening. Right? To be in the middle of arising discomfort and not being so disturbed by it. Right? So we can use that as a working definition of nirvana. So the Heart Sutra says this about nirvana. With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva, so a bodhisattva is a a being who is striving to be awake and to help um, other people end their suffering. So, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Far beyond all inverted views, one realizes nirvana. Right, so prajna paramita means the perfection of wisdom or the perfection mm -hmm. of insight. So prajna paramita is a combination of a couple of words. The Sanskrit word prajna, I'll, I don't know how to spell it obviously in Sanskrit. So the American, the Romanized way of it is P-R-A-J-N-A. So this means like non-dual or non-conceptual wisdom, right, prajna. And paramita means perfection. So this is a central concept in Mahayana Buddhism, and Zen is Mahayana, the greater vehicle. Um, so this perfection of wisdom, if we are able to perfect this type of non-conceptual wisdom, right, not, not here wisdom, then we, sometimes we can taste, quick taste of nirvana each moment, right? So the end of suffering, um, unless you have, um, unless you know you're the Buddha or Buddhas, there's more than one Buddha, seven Buddhas before the, the Buddha that we refer to. Uh, 
there are definitely spiritual people who are very evolved, who um, may have continuous nirvana, end of suffering. And I also feel like it's really helpful to focus on those moments when we experience just moment by moment liberation from some suffering, where we don't react in a way that we did before. It may not be the big capital N, you know, nirvana, but I think we, if we focus on nirvana as a way to be upright in the middle of arising discomfort, psycho-emotional discomfort, or even physical discomfort, um, that can be a little taste of, of liberation right in the middle of all this, right? Not escaping somewhere, but being with it, just like we were while we were meditating, right? It's not always comfortable to meditate, especially on this tatami floor. How can we watch the mind move and not get so pushed around by it? Right? So I'll say the phrase again, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on the perfection of wisdom, and thus the mind is without hindrance. And far beyond all inverted views, one realizes nirvana. So we realize nirvana, this end of, this, of suffering in the moment, when we rely on this non-conceptual wisdom. Right? Again, you know, Zen is a body practice. It's about dropping out of the head, being with the body. Another way that this um, mind is without hindrance, another way I've seen it translated is the mind is no hindrance. Right? That thoughts may be floating around, there may be emotions, but the mind is not tripping us up, if you will. Okay. So since I um, don't I'm not a scholar of ancient Buddhist texts. I often like to look at more than one translation so I can understand a little bit more. So another translation of the same phrase is, this is a red pine. He's a wonderful um, scholar of many Mahayana scriptures. Without attainment, bodhisattvas take refuge in the perfection of wisdom, and they live without walls of mind, which I love that phrase. They live without walls of mind. Without walls of the mind, and thus without fears, so when those walls drop, there's no fear. They see through all these delusions of the mind. Another, uh, another translation by Edward Kanza, that's C-O-N-Z-E. He's not a contemporary uh, scholar like Red Pine is. Uh, Kanza is no longer uh, alive. He translated this way. It is because of their non-attainment-ness that a bodhisattva, through having relied on the perfection of wisdom or the perfection of insight, dwells without thought coverings. In the absence of thought coverings, they have not been able, they have not been made to tremble, so these thought coverings aren't there, so they're not a fear, they're not trembling. Right? So they have overcome what can upset, so they're no longer upset by arising thought sensations and emotions. And in the end, they attain nirvana. Okay. So for me, 
these reference points that the Buddha talked about, right? Nirvana was, had no reference points. Those are the thought coverings or the walls of mind, right? reference points. So the way for a bodhisattva to taste some nirvana is to see through these walls of mind or these thought coverings. And what we're hoping to have insight into is what the Buddha called the three marks of existence, which is impermanence, everything's always changing. So all these thought coverings, emotions, sensations, thoughts, they're all changing all the time. <clears throat> that we experience these thought coverings or these walls of mind as impermanent and also that they're the source of suffering. More particularly identifying with what's arising is the source of suffering. When the mind grasps onto those objects of mind, thoughts, emotions, sensations, that's often why we're suffering. So uh, a long, long time ago, when I was in grammar school, I was about eight or nine years old, and I had this wonderful third grade teacher, Miss Joan Kopecky. I'll say her by name since I'm sure she's no longer alive. And I really, really loved this teacher. I don't really know why, because she wasn't particularly warm or friendly. She was a little sarcastic, but she really wanted you to learn. And she was super enthusiastic about you learning. And she was very challenging in that way. Well, one day, um, it's lunchtime, and all my friends are leaving the classroom. This is a Catholic grammar school outside of the Bronx in New York. And there's Miss Joan Kopecky. She's got one of those, I don't know if people still use these, one of those little compact mirrors, and it has like the beige makeup on it. And so she's there, and she's like looking at this mirror, and she's putting all this makeup on her face. And my mother didn't really wear makeup, so I, I went up to ask her, you know, well, what are you doing, Miss Kopecky? And she said, I'm putting on makeup. And I said, well, aren't you just going to lunch? Like, why are you wearing makeup? And she said, because I might meet Mr. Wright at lunch. <laughs> Okay, she might meet Mr. Wright at lunch. So without hesitation, I said, Mr. Wright is dead. <laughs> and she, without hesitation, slapped me across the face. <laughs> yeah. So, as you can imagine, I was very upset and crying, and I ran out of the classroom. And as soon as I turned the corner into the hallway, there wasn't anybody in the hallway, I gave her the finger behind the wall, of course. <laughs> I had two older brothers, so, you know, it's like, I was seething because I felt that I was misunderstood and that I was wrongfully slapped. I mean, of course, I was feeling the physical sting of it as well. I don't remember what else happened that day. I don't remember going back into the classroom. I just remember this, um, episode with her. So when I go home, my mother's in the kitchen, and she's, I think she was like making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I relayed the story to her. And when I told her that I said, Mr. Wright is dead, my mother's like, you said what? To your teacher? And I said, well, aren't Orville and Wil Wilbur Wright dead? The flying machine guys, the Wright brothers, they're dead. That's what she told us a few weeks ago that the Wright brothers are dead. So I was just telling her 
Mr. Wright is dead. And my mother said, no, no, you, well, first my mother laughed because she thought it was funny, but she also saw that I was upset and her daughter had just been slapped. So she said, she explained to me that Mr. Wright was not one of the Wright brothers, that Mr. Wright was the ideal future husband. So basically, Heather, you insulted your teacher. You told her that she was never going to find Mr. Wright. She was never going to find this ideal future husband. All right, so, of course, I'm eight. And in my vocabulary, there wasn't a Mr. Wright. I wasn't focusing on an ideal future husband at eight years old. And really, it's not a matter of right or wrong. I mean, she was wrong to smack me, of course. Uh, But it was her perception and my perception, right? It all pivoted on this concept of Mr. Right. So she had a reference point, right? She had a Mr. Right reference point. There's an ideal future husband, and guess what? You're not going to find him. Because this little eight-year-old girl just told you he was dead, right? (laughs) So this is a reference point. This was a story that she must have internalized from society, her family, friends. She was probably at the time, I I assume she was in her 30s. I don't really know because when you're eight, like anybody who's over like 20 or 18 is ancient. Uh, So I imagine she was in her 30s and somehow she had this story. And this was an unexamined story for her, right? So much so that she took me, I mean, and granted, I was a little bit of a smart aleck back then, even at eight, but she took me as a threat, right? And, and, it wasn't, and she didn't even think about smacking me. I mean, she just did it, right? So she had this immediate trigger, right? So she believed this story about this ideal future husband and that she was not worthy of finding this ideal future husband. So my teacher would always tell me that if there's suffering, you sort of go back to the source there, if you will. Go back, not the source, but you go back to, oh, are you holding on to a belief? Are you believing a belief that's causing you to suffer? So she had this story that she was identified with, that she wasn't going to find Mr. Right. And, the, and holding on and believing that story was the source of her suffering. Because if she didn't identify with that story, if she didn't have that reference point in her body-mind consciousness, she wouldn't have smacked me. She would have laughed like my mother and said, oh no, what do you mean he's dead? Oh, then I would have said, well, you said the Wright brothers were dead, right? The ones like Kitty Hawk with the flying machine. And she said, oh, Heather, you're so silly. I'm looking for a husband. You know, that's my Mr. Wright. And then I would have said, oh, why do you want to get married? Something like that, right? I'm going to go out and play girls catch the boys or boys catch the girls, whatever, right? So, but that story was very, um, there's a lot of unexamined, she carried that around with her in her body-mind consciousness, right? She wasn't born with that idea, with that reference point. So, you know, the slap is like a slap of separation, right? She feels separate from me. She's overlaying this old story onto the present moment has nothing to do with the situation, right? And this suffering 
when they're suffering like that, I might have said this at the last talk, because it's one of my favorite lines, so forgive me. Um, selfing equals suffering. So the self is dynamic. It's not one thing, right? The reason that we all can grow up is because everything changes. Otherwise, we'd all be in here as, as little babies, right? We're growing up. Everything's changing. That's, that's one of the main teachings of the Buddha. Everything changes and changes everything, right? So when we're suffering, that is selfing. And so our job, if you will, is to look at, take that backward step and to investigate what's causing this suffering. Right? There's something, there's a self there. And these selves, or these selfings, um, sometimes uh, you can, people might refer to them as like karmic conditioned beings, or sometimes you might hear people talk about hungry ghosts, Sometimes they refer to that way. So it's like whenever there's a um, preference, sometimes a very strong one, which at the monastery, uh, sometimes that's just about dinner because, or, or lunch or breakfast because you're not in control of your diet and then all of a sudden all these preferences show up. Uh, whereas maybe out here you're eating like candy bars all day and then in there you're like, no, I can't have this completely organic vegan thing. but because you're not in control, and you, you realize you have this little reference point, right? So, um, so we all have these uh, fairy, I guess the book of me, right? These fairy tales about ourselves, these stories that we hold on to that cause us to suffer. And so my teacher would always say, well, drop that thought. If that thought's causing you to suffer, then don't believe it. Well, it's not that easy, of course, but it's kind of how do we practice with dropping those thoughts, dropping those reference points that are causing us to suffer. So, um, the, the way that we can, when we're practicing meditation, start to notice what's arising and when we're getting stuck is that when these thoughts or emotions and emotions are like heavy-handed thoughts, right? They have a lot of gravitas to them. There's some thoughts that may cause us to feel angry or agitated or afraid or ashamed. So this is all about investigating what's arising. So it's not about blocking anything out. Meditation is not about stopping our thoughts, right? It's not about stopping thinking mind. It's about becoming intimate with what's arising in the mind and what's the effect on the body and what's the body effect on the mind. I don't know if you've noticed this, but for me, if I'm in a lot of physical pain when I'm sitting, sometimes my mind is just like ricocheting everywhere. It's like, okay, okay, okay. How do I gather it? How can I gather it and bring my breath, mind toward the pain? Because then usually it hurts less. Right? So you want to try to settle into what's arising, relax into what's arising when we're on the cushion and try to, if you will, be patient and still with it, even if it's just for a few seconds. Because the more we're able to do that while we're on the cushion, then the less triggered we usually are when we're off the cushion. Right? That slowly seeps into our everyday consciousness right? when we're interacting with people. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's easier when you're staring at a wall or you're sitting in, in your room or sitting here 
with your eyes closed, not to get triggered because you're just here. And then when there's someone across from you, you get triggered. But if we can start to remind ourselves that whoever's sitting across from you is not responsible for how you're feeling. Because right? often we blame other people, like my teacher, my third grade teacher. Maybe if she had been a Zen practitioner, maybe she would have taken that backward step and unpacked all this and then not have smacked me. But then I wouldn't have a story to tell. So, um, but what, she, what happens is if we, can, if, we keep, if we don't take responsibility for what's arising in our bodies and minds, we'll never have any liberation because I have to chase after somebody else and say, oh, would you make me free? Would you make me free? Oh, could you, hey, you in the back, could you liberate me? Right? So this is about, like, partly about being an adult, right? Is how do I take responsibility? I'm not in control of what's arising in my body-mind. There's all these karmic reasons that we're here, right? So we're not, we're not in control of what's arising, but we are responsible to what's arising. So if we keep um, looking outside of ourselves for liberation, to be released from something, then we'll never find it. Right? So it's, as Dogen, as A.A. Dogen says, he's a 13th century founder of Zen in Japan, taking that backward step to illuminate ourselves. Oh look, this eight-year-old girl, who sometimes is sarcastic and precocious, just told me that my ideal future husband is dead. Why is that causing me to feel like I want to smack her? <laughs> right? <laughs> So it's like about unpacking this to see where we're suffering. Because wherever our blind spots are is often how we hurt people. Right? When we're not aware of things, when we act away from psycho-emotional pain and suffering, we try to move away from it, and that's often when we harm ourselves and other people. So the Heart Sutra also reminds us that these reference points, both the objects that we perceive and also the mind that's perceiving is always changing. Right? So there's that old uh, Greek phrase, you can't step into the same river twice. And the Buddhist perspective on it is, the same person can't step into the same river twice. Because you're changing as well, not just the river. The river is flowing, you can see that, but you're also flowing. Right? So, so one of the... Um, I've got to keep me mindful of the time here. Oh, 7.40. Oh, okay, I'm going to end. Oh, no, I still have, no, that's not true. Is it 7.40, that's it? No, it's 8.05. It's like, wait a second. Okay. Um, so everything that arises um, is going to fade away, as we talked about. And one way that we can play with this is by doing sound meditation, right? So when I strike the bell, we hear the bell. So some people may find the bell sounds pleasing, it sounds harsh, there's other sounds I can make with it, right? So the sound arises, it persists, but you know, it's persisting as a wave, right? It's not a solid object, right? It's, it's fluctuating and then it fades away. Well, the same is true with everything that's arising. And the same is true, I want to mention most especially, 
with thoughts. So you could practice while you're meditating with thoughts when they arise, especially if they're triggering you. Just treat them like sounds, just when you're on the cushion. Right? Treat it like a sound. It's like, oh, that's a harsh thought or that's a pleasing thought. Oh, look at that, it's going away. Right? And so it's like it's not, as Suzuki Roshi said, it's not about inviting those thoughts for tea. It's just about noticing those thoughts, noticing what's arising, noticing if we're getting triggered by a past memory or a future projection. So we have what's going on in this room right now, right? This is the reality we're in right now. But often we react to the mind as though the mind, those thought coverings or those walls of mind are actually reality. Like my teacher did. She reacted to this thought covering she had about the ideal future husband. And then I got smacked. Right? So um, with the sound of a bell, we don't often, I hope, take the sound personally. Because it's the sound of a bell. It's impersonal. You're not saying, oh my god, that bell hates me. I can't believe that bell is metal. Why is it purple and orange? I don't like purple and orange. It should choose a different thing to sit on. Right? Like, we don't usually project that kind of drama onto the bell. <laughs> but we take, we take our thoughts seriously, right? We take other people's thoughts, their projections onto us. Sometimes we take that seriously and that causes us to suffer. So what's true for one dharma, and a dharma with a little d just means arising phenomena, just conditions that are arising, which is what a thought is. It's just arising. So the less we take our thinking personally, usually, the less suffering. And you can all investigate this and experiment it with, with it. Are there some thoughts that cause you to suffer quite a bit? You know? I don't know, we're all um, conditioned differently. Like I was a person who was always like going into the past. I, that, I think, is from my childhood, my family, was always like looking in the past. So that was where I, a lot of my suffering was. And I was like, just lugging it forward, right? Lugging it forward. So when we're meditating, this is all about becoming really intimate with what's going on for ourselves. So, um, so there might be some associations with the sound of a bell, like at the monastery, sometimes the bell is calling you to service. Sometimes it's the beginning of Zazen and you're excited about that, sometimes you just can't wait for the bell, like when you're a kid waiting for the lunch bell, right, to release you from school. Same thing. So all those associations have nothing to do with the bell. The bell is just, it's just a sound. You can make up stories all you want about it, but it's just a bell. That's the same, I know not so easy, but when you're interacting with other people, right, or when you're getting all lost in the briar patch or Mara, the god of delusion. Just if you can remember to work with thoughts similar to how you might work with a sound, that might help give some, some relief to what's going on in that moment. So just one more quote from the Heart Attack Sutra. He says this about um, our minds, about life. He says, not only is our perceiving mind dynamic in that it changes from moment to moment, but all the objects are too, right? So phenomena, dharma, 
little d dharma, phenomena cannot be defined by themselves. They don't exist by themselves. Rather, we can only talk about phenomena as complexes of relationships with other phenomena, which in themselves are complexes of relationships with other complexes of relationships. So what really is a bell, right? It's metal. It was forged by somebody somewhere in a factory, maybe by hand from Japan. It was sold. It doesn't make a sound unless I strike it with this other thing, which is a composite of the elements, just like the bell is and the cushion, just like we all are. We're all complexes of relationships that are interacting with complexes of relationships. Now it's not so easy to have a conversation if we're going to talk about everything that got this bell here. We'll be here all night. <laughs> but all the elements of the universe are running through each one of us, make up each one of us, just like it does the bell. Right? So these are the complexes of relationships. So when we're able to be with what's arising in this way, sometimes those thought coverings and those walls of mind those reference points fall away. Okay. So what I thought what we could do is we'll go into uh, these breakout groups and maybe you can have talk a little bit about some reference points for yourself or maybe some, maybe, or share maybe like your top three reference points. Like I am, I'm an engineer. Um, I'm the best at my work or I stink at my work or I'm the best volleyball player, or I'm Italian, or I'm Spanish, or I'm a mother, or I'm a sister. Like, are there some reference points that you are really identified with that you have seen in your life that perhaps have caused you to suffer? Or a story like this that maybe uh, you felt harmed by someone's story, uh, and your reference point smashing up against that person? Right. So um, those are just some prompts that you might want to work with. and. Yeah, let's see. I'm going to turn this off now.